Genesis chapter number 33 this morning. I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. The Word of God says, And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau came, with him four hundred men. He divided the children unto Leah and unto Rachel and unto the two handmaids. And he put the handmaids and their children foremost, and Leah and her children after, and Rachel and Joseph hindermost. And he passed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. He lifted up his eyes and saw the women and the children and said, Who are those with thee? And uh, and he said, The children which God hath graciously given thy servant. Then the handmaidens came near, they and their children, and they bowed themselves. Leah also with her children came near and bowed themselves. And after came Joseph near and Rachel, and they bowed themselves. And he said, meaning Esau, he said, What meanest thou by all this grove which I met? And he said, These are to find grace in the sight of my Lord. And Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep that thou hast unto thyself. And Jacob said, Nay, I pray thee, if now I have found grace in thy sight, then receive my present at my hand. For therefore I have seen thy face as though I had seen the face of God, and thou wast pleased with me. Take, I pray thee, my blessing that is brought to thee, because God hath dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. And he urged him, and he took it. And he said, Let us take our journey, and let us go, and I will go before thee. And he said unto him, My Lord knoweth that the children are tender, and the flocks and herds with young are with me. And if men should overdrive them one day, all the flock will die. Let my Lord, I pray thee, pass over before his servant, and I will lead on softly according as the cattle that goeth before me, and the children be able to endure until I come unto my Lord unto Seir. And Esau said, Let me now leave with thee some of the folk that are with me. And he said, What needeth it? Let me find grace in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way unto Seir. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the time that You've given us. We thank You for Your precious Word. We pray that You'd bless now the preaching of it to the hearts of Your people. Lord, also to the hearts of any that might be under the sound of my voice that are lost without Christ. Let today be the day that they come to know Your Son as their Savior. We'll be sure to give You all the praise and glory and honor for it. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You know, as we have read Genesis chapter number 33, I am impressed by the usage of a particular word. You'll find it several times, and you may have even picked up on it as we read through these 16 verses. Uh, You can look down and find it in verse number 10. The Bible says, If now I have found grace in thy sight. You'll find it down uh, in, uh, let's see, verse uh, number, uh, let me find it here, 15, where he says, Let me find grace in the sight of my Lord. Over and over again in Genesis 33, a reoccurring theme and word that you'll find is the word grace. You know, I don't know that we could ever preach enough on the grace of God. I think the grace of God is something, uh, old Harold Sattler used to say, that it's, it's like trying to hug a mountain, you'll never get it done. It's like trying to drink in the ocean, you'll never get it accomplished. It's like trying to describe to a man that's never had sight what a sunset looks like. Well, never really, I believe, comprehend the grace of God on this side of eternity. And yet you find all through the Word of God this running theme of the grace of God. Over and over and over again, our attention is drawn to God's grace. 
it's interesting to me that this phrase grace should be found in so many uh, chapters and found in so many verses that relate to the story of Joseph. How many of you know that the patriarchs were uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph? You know that to be true? Uh, of those patriarchs, uh, Jacob was sort of the black sheep of the family. Uh, certainly his life is marked by carnality all through the pages of the Word of God. It seems to almost be, I, I mean, it, it's there's sort of a, uh, if I can use this term, a bipolar nature to Jacob's story. I mean, at one moment he's soaring to great heights, and another moment he's down in the depths and muck of sin. But you know, it encourages me today to know that the grace of God is for somebody like Jacob. Because when I look through the pages of Scripture and I look at Isaac's life, I don't see a lot that reminds me of myself. When I look at Abraham's life, I don't really see a lot that reminds me of myself. Certainly when I look at Joseph's life, I don't really see a lot that reminds me of myself. But when I look at Jacob's life, it's almost like I'm looking in a mirror. I see a lot of things in Jacob's life that remind me of myself. You know, when I see his life, and I want us to notice a few things this morning out of this chapter, I see that in Genesis chapter number 33, Jacob learns some lessons about the grace of God. The Word of God tells us that the grace of God teaches us some things. Isn't that right? Uh, we need to learn about the grace of God. And Jacob, who had lived his life as a trickster, as a supplanter, as a deceiver, when he comes to meet Esau, his brother, he is taught some things about the way that the grace of God works. Now, if we were to define grace, we'd really have a task in front of us, wouldn't we? But most people would define grace simply as this, uh, that grace is God giving us things that we do not deserve. Some people like the little uh, an acronym, and I guess that's what you call it, right? Or is that, is that the fear of spiders? Something like that. God's riches at Christ's expense to define the idea of what grace is. But one thing that can't be mistaken about it is that all through this passage, Jacob learns about three different things about the grace of God, and it's fitting because I see myself in his situation. By way of introduction, can I share with you a little bit of Jacob's personal life? You know, when I look at Jacob, I see in his rebellion, I see a picture of the lost sinner. Uh, you know, you consider his relationship to Esau. The Bible teaches us that Jacob was fearful when he was coming to meet Esau, and he had every right to be fearful. Esau had every right to kill Jacob. Jacob had spent his entire life doing Esau wrong. In fact, I noticed three ways that Jacob had done Esau wrong. In Genesis chapter 25, we are told that Jacob had wronged Esau concerning the birthright. You may remember the story how that Jacob, who dwelt in and stayed close to his mother, uh, was uh, there within the tent. And Esau had been out hunting in the field. And he comes in, and he's famished, and he's weak, and he's getting ready to perish. And he comes in, and he asks his brother, who is uh, making a, a sort of stew, he says, please, would you make me some of this pottage? Can I have some of this? I'm getting ready to faint. I'm getting ready to die. Would you please, just out of love, out of compassion, would you share with me what you have? Jacob looks at him and says, well, I sure will, brother, for a price. <laughs> And he says, if you'll give to me your birthright, the birthright, of course, would uh, deal with the patriarchy. It would deal with the fact that he would be the head of the household uh, going forward. It would deal with the inheritance, the fact uh, that he would get a double portion before the rest of the inheritance would ever be meted out. And there at that moment of vulnerability, Jacob pounced upon his brother and took from him that which did not belong to him. You know, it sort of reminds me of the way that we've treated God, doesn't it? 
Because God has done so much for us. God has provided so many benefits for humanity. You understand that humanity wouldn't even be here if it wasn't for God, right? I mean, I know that's an elementary statement, but I think sometimes that we miss the truth and impact of it. And yet humanity, where they should have blessed God, humanity, where they should have sought to please God, humanity, where they should have sought uh, to pursue God, instead has turned around and treated God illy and poorly. He reminds me of the sinner in that he uh, wronged Esau the way that we've wronged God. He also reminds me of the sinner in that he robbed Esau, I think, a lot of the way we robbed God. You know, a lot of times we uh, conflate these two stories and we confuse them with each other. Uh, But there was the birthright and then there was the blessing. The blessing had to do with, uh, uh, it was almost a supernatural thing. Isaac would uh, bestow his blessing upon the eldest son and there would be some commandments involved and there would be some things he would invoke and ask God to do as a result of it. And Esau, as the firstborn, had the right to the blessing of his father. Now, with the birthright, Jacob had merely uh, wronged Esau, but with the blessing, he flat out robbed him. One day, Esau was out in the field. Isaac was old, and his eyes were growing dim, and he was not uh, as sharp as he had once been. And uh, Rebekah, uh, Jacob and Esau's mother, comes in to Jacob and says, Jacob, you need to go into your father and ask your father to bless you, and uh, you need to cover yourself in goat skins. Esau was a hairy man. Amen. And uh, cover yourself with goat skins and you need to have the, the, the smell of the field on you. And you need to change your voice to sound like your brother Esau. And you need to go in and you need to try to get that blessing from your father. And so uh, he goes in and speaks to Isaac. And Isaac says, before I bless you, I want you to go out and I want you to get me some venison like I love to eat. And if you'll bring that to me, I'll bless you. He goes out, and of course his mother, Rebecca, prepares some goat meat. Uh, He couldn't have been too sharp because he couldn't tell the difference between deer meat and goat meat. Somebody say amen to that. But he goes in, and he lies to his father, and he steals from his brother the blessing that belonged to him. You know, that reminds me of what us as sinners has done. Because, you know, God has blessed humanity. You know, you understand, you wouldn't be drawing a breath right now if it wasn't for God allowing it. Man would not have the capacity to live and to function. Uh, the uh, book of Acts tells us that it's in God we live and move and have our being. And yet, what has humanity done? We've taken all the blessings of God and turned around and used them to curse God's name with them. Uh, you know, we live in a day, and you know this to be true, the book of Romans said this day was coming when uh, humanity would worship the creature more than the Creator. Uh, we live in a day where we don't have any interest in anything, whether it offends God or not, but we'll do anything that we can to keep the snail dart from going extinct. Amen? Uh, listen, I, I mean, if, if you're going down the road and run over the wrong animal, they'll put you in prison, but people go all day, every day, in and out of clinics and murder unborn children. We live in a day where we've taken all of the life and beauty that God has blessed us with and used it to turn around and to curse His name. I think it's a picture of the sinner and how he robbed Esau, but I think it's a picture of the sinner and how he ran from Esau. Look over a couple chapters in chapter number 35. I want to read one verse to you. Look over at verse number 1. The Bible says this, And God said unto Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there, and make there an altar unto God that appeared unto thee when thou fleddest from the face of Esau thy brother. Uh, Jacob, for all these years, had been running from Esau. He had been, and he had, like I said, he had every common sense reason to run from him because if he had gotten what he deserved, Esau would have taken his head from his shoulders. It reminds me of the way that the sinner is in that he does everything he can to push away God's love and compassion and wooing influence. 
How often have you heard somebody say, well, I just can't believe in a God that would send somebody to hell. You ever heard somebody say that? Tells you something about the narcissism of the human spirit, doesn't it? Because God, in fact, uh, listen, if men die and go to hell, they've had to climb over the cross of Calvary to get there. If men die, listen, if you today, if you leave this world and die and go to hell, it's not been because God let you, it's because you wouldn't let God stop you from dying and going to hell. God has done so many things to place roadblocks into the way of lost sinners that they might come to know Christ. Listen, I, I know that God, in, in a sense, does things for Himself and does all things for Himself, and rightly so, because He's God. But I also, uh, you think about all the things that God has done in the hearts and lives of lost sinners so that they might come to know Him. Uh, I'm reminded of what the psalmist said when he said, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Has it ever dawned on you that God loved lost sinners enough that He sent His Son to die for him? Uh, not only did He send His Son to die for him, but He raised His Son in power and in glory that He might be able to save him. Not only did He do that, but He gave this world, the local church, the vehicle and means of God's instrumentality in this world. Not only that, but God called preachers that they might sound forth the clarion call of the music and truth of the gospel. Not only that, but He sent the Holy Ghost to minister and work in this world that He might convict the heart of sinners. Hey, listen, not only that, but He gave the church singers, He gave the church teachers. He's ministering constantly, day in and day out in your personal life. Has it ever dawned on you that the very conviction of God is an expression of His love? God doesn't have to convict you. God doesn't have to deal with you. But God loves you, and that's why He speaks to your heart. But still we run and we run and we run from God's love and grace. I think he's a picture in his rebellion of the sinner. But I also noticed that there was a time when he wrestled with God. You know, and I see in that wrestling match, I see a picture of the Savior. Now remember, this is before he ever gets to meet Esau. Uh, this is before he ever steps foot in front of Esau. And that's going to be important for you to know here in a moment. But the night before the story that we read this morning, the Bible says that Jacob found himself alone by the Ford Jabbok. Uh, here he is, he's bankrupt. <laughs> I mean, he's got, he's got some material goods, but I mean, as far as life is concerned, he's bankrupt. He expects the next day to get up, go see his brother and be slain and laid low right there on that field. He's left alone. There's no one can save him. There's no one can help him. And there in the midst of that loneliness, the Bible says that there wrestled a man with Jacob until the breaking of day. Now, uh, you can believe what you want to, but I'll tell you what I believe. I believe that was not just an angel of the Lord. I believe that was the angel of the Lord. And I believe the angel of the Lord throughout the Old Testament was nobody but Christ Himself. And Christ begins to wrestle. Theologians would call it a Christophany or a theophany, a pre-Bethlehem incarnation of Christ. And He begins to wrestle with Jacob. And Jacob begins, you know, to get the upper hand because Jacob had always done that. Throughout his whole life, Jacob, everything he had ever gotten, he had gotten by conniving and sneaking and fighting and wrestling and striving. And he begins to get the upper hand as he's wrestling. The Bible says that the angel just reaches out and touches the hollow of his thigh. All of a sudden now, all the strength is, is zapped from his system. And now all he has strength enough to do. Now he's not wrestling the man, but he's merely clinging to that man. The angel looks at him and says, let me go. And he says, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. And he changes his name there and he blesses him. And he names him Israel. He says, as a prince with God, hast thou uh, strived and has conquered uh, through your prayers and through your pleading. You know, it reminds me of how a person gets saved. I don't know about you, but it reminds me of what it is when a person comes to know Christ as their Savior. Now, some of you, listen, you may have got saved and it may have not been a real dramatic experience as it relates to outward appearances. 
When I got saved, I got saved. I was by myself in my room as a 10-year-old boy. Nobody in this world was paying attention to that 10-year-old boy in that bedroom, but somebody out of this world was paying attention to that 10-year-old boy. And the Lord came and convicted me and showed me my need of Christ's salvation. And if you were to look at it from the outward appearance, it probably wouldn't have been that impressive, but what God did in my heart has stayed ever since. Uh, It has been real ever since. Uh, It has uh, gripped a hold of me and not let go ever since. And I came away changed from that meeting. You may have had a more dramatic. I've heard stories of people being under such conviction that they literally tremble. I've, of course, heard stories of people being under such conviction they left fingernail marks on the back of the top of the pew that they were sitting behind. I've heard all sorts of stories, and I believe God convicts men in that way. But I want you to understand that the basic truths concerning his experience there by the brook Jabbok are universally true. And I want you to note three of them. Number one, uh, at that meeting, he was a broken man. You're never going to get saved till God breaks you. As long as it's still you trying to get there and you accepting God's help getting there, that's not enough. Until you realize, listen, as long as it's you trying to do God a favor by being a good person, that's not enough. As long as it's you trying to join the church to turn over a new leaf, to straighten things up or whatever it might be, or go through baptismal, that's not going to be enough. You know what you and I need? And you know what every lost sinner in this world needed? and does need, is that God might, just as He did with Jacob, reach out and touch. You know, the the thigh is the seat of power. If a person's thigh goes, if his hip goes, he has no ability to stand. And He reached out. All that gave Him stability, all that gave Him security, Brother Charlie, all that enabled Him to walk on His own and to move on His own and to do on His own, God reached out and He broke it. And He showed him, Jacob, you need me to even stand. He was a broken man. I noticed not only he was a broken man, but I noticed he was a blessed man. He said, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. And you know what God did? He blessed him. He blessed him how? He changed his name. Jacob would forever be different. Uh, It's interesting, too, as you study through, every time he's acting in the flesh, God calls him Jacob. And every time he's acting in the Spirit, God calls him Israel. He was forever changed that day, and it was the greatest day of his entire life. He would recount it later on. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews that when Jacob was dying, he worshipped leaning upon his staff. He would think back to that day when God had met him and wrestled him and broken him. It was a day that his whole life pivoted on. You know, the day that I got saved, there's never been a day like that in my life. And I don't expect there ever will. As I already said, I was a 10-year-old boy. I mean, I wasn't into a lot of nonsense and wickedness and and mess. I mean, you know, maybe leave leave my room messy or something, amen, or maybe tell a little lie like children often do. But I look at the trajectory of my life, and I see so many people that have wound up their life is in pieces. And I want you to listen to me today. If there's anything in my life that is worth noting, if there's anything that I have that's worth having, it is due only and completely to the grace of God. There's nothing within me. There's nothing of me. There's nothing about me that is redeeming. I listen, I say with Paul that in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. Listen, if I'm not in the gutter today, if I'm not in the ditch today, it's not because of who Toby Weber is. It's because there was a day when I met God and God met me and He grabbed hold of me and I grabbed hold of Him and He broke me and blessed me. I see it a picture of salvation in that sense. But I also notice he was a branded man. Everywhere he went after that, people knew he had met somebody. 
when he walked, the Bible says that when he left there, he was halting upon his thigh. Every, by the time he went and died, he still had that staff in his hand. He was forever changed by what God had done in his life. Let me tell you something. You get saved by God's grace, it will change you. There are some things in this world that are impossible. And one thing that is impossible is for a man to come to Christ and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, to be born again, and to walk away unchanged. You find me one example in the Word of God where a man came to Christ and believed on Him and walked away unchanged. You find me one example in history where a person has come to Christ and believed on Him and walked away unchanged. You won't be able to do it. One universal truth all through the Word of God is when a man met Christ, it transformed his life and his behavior. The Bible says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. You say, preacher, does that mean a person is going to be perfect? No, it doesn't mean they're going to be perfect. It does mean they're going to be different. So we find in this word about Jacob... A picture of the sinner in his rebellion. We see a picture of the Savior in his wrestling. But I'd like for you to notice for a few moments this morning that we see a picture of the sovereign God in Jacob's reception. You know, we typically don't think of Esau as a very spiritual person. And in fact, all through the Word of God, he is not really a spiritual person. And yet, as I look at this passage, I see in Esau a picture in the way that he treated Jacob of the way that God treats us and deals with us. You see, Esau did for Jacob what God has done for you and me if we've been saved by God's grace. And from his uh, lost brother, he learned some things about the way that God deals with humanity. Now, I want you to notice three of them, and we'll finish this morning. I want you to notice that he learned something about the proper approach under grace. It's interesting when you read this passage, there is a word that arrives here that is nowhere else connected with the life of Jacob. Nowhere before this will you find this word relating to Jacob. You'll find it relating to other people and other things and other ideas. But nowhere will you find Jacob doing this anywhere else in the Bible. Look at verse number 1. The Bible says, And God said unto Jacob, uh, or excuse me, I'm sorry, look uh, in verse number 1, I was over in chapter 35. In verse number 1 of chapter 33, it says, And Jacob lifted up his eyes, and looked, and behold, Esau came, and with him four hundred men. And he divided the children unto Leah, and unto Rachel, and unto the two handmaids. And he put the handmaids and their children foremost, and Leah and her children after, and Rachel and Joseph hindermost. Now look at verse number 3. The Bible says, And he passed over before them, and bowed himself to the ground, seven times until he came near to his brother. I want you to notice first off that when Jacob approaches Esau, he arrives bowing. Never before had Jacob bowed in his entire life, at least according to the record of Scripture. But he understands that when he comes to Esau, he's coming to someone that, listen, he can't come to him bucking. He's got to come to him bowing if he's going to get anywhere. You know, one of the first things that we ought to learn about the grace of God is that the grace of God can't be wrestled down into submission. 
The grace of God is not something that we command at our whim and at our desire. The grace of God, listen, when I came to Christ, I want you to listen to me. I didn't come to bargain. In my hand, no price I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. When I came to Jesus, I didn't have a backup plan. When I came to Jesus, there wasn't nothing I could offer Him. As a ten-year-old boy, what could I say to the God of the universe? Listen, as the old songwriter said, what could a beggar ever give to a king? And here's part of the problem today, is we want to come to God on bargaining terms. You know what? You know the only bargaining terms, that you know the only reasoning terms you have with God? Isaiah points it out. He says, come let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. You don't have anything to bring to God except wicked, old, dark, ugly sin. That's it. Bible says, you say, well, preacher, what about the good things I do? Well, what does the Bible say about those good things? book of Isaiah says that our righteousness is as filthy rags. The best that you have is putrefaction in the face of God's righteousness. You're not going to come to Christ by coming in and bragging. You're only going to come to Christ by coming and bowing. It's interesting that he bowed seven times. We know that the number seven is the number of completion in the Bible. He was completely humbled by the approach of his brother. And you know why that is? Because he was afraid of him. He was afraid of him. It even says it earlier, the Bible says that when a servant comes and tells him that Esau is coming with 400 brethren or 400 men to meet his brother Jacob, Jacob says he's going to fall on me, he's going to slay me, he's going to kill me. And Esau had every right to do it. Uh, Listen, you understand that God has every right to condemn a sinner to hell if He wants to. Uh, You say, well, why don't God do that? God is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish. But God has the right to do it if He wanted to do it. Uh, It would not make Him any less God if He was to do it. But He in grace, listen now, in grace has extended out and stretched out His arm unto you and me. And when we approach unto Him, we don't approach bargaining. We approach bowing. He was fearful of his brother Esau. We see that he would uh, approach, he arrived bowing. But then I want you to notice what the Bible says about how Esau responded to him. We see that Jacob arrived bowing. But look down at verse uh, number 4. The Bible says, And Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. Now, can I paint the scene for you? I, 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 you probably don't need me to, but let me do it if you don't mind. Jacob knows he's getting ready to die. He knows he has, that his past sins have finally caught up with him. Uh, many, many years before, he had robbed and wronged and ran from Esau, and now here's Esau coming down the road. And he knows he only has a few moments to live. And he knows his only choice, his only hope is to cast himself upon the ground and to plead for mercy from his brother. And he doesn't believe it's going to happen. You say, preacher, how do you know that? Because he split his family up. He sends Leah with half the family and Rachel with the other half. You say, preacher, why does he do that? Well, the Bible tells us why he did it. He did it because he reasoned that if Esau fell on one, the other would escape. He did not expect this to end well. That's what I'm getting at. But when he arrives bowing, what does Esau do? We see that Jacob is accepted into the beloved. <laughs> uh, let me tell you, if, if, if it had been me or you, if we had been Esau, uh, we wouldn't have done what he did. We would have come out and we would have took a, he- a sword and took his head off. We would have sent those 400 men to fall on every one of those people and to slay him. But that's not what Esau did. Instead, when he sees his brother, all of the, it's almost like those past sins never even happened, Brother Charlie. 
You know, it's almost like ever since he met that man and wrestled with that man and was broken and his name was changed. Oh, Jacob, he had done all that. But Israel, he had been granted a blessing from God. And he's treated as though it never even happened. The Bible says that he fell on him and embraced him and hugged him and kissed him. And they just began to weep. Reminds me of how God treated you and I when we came to him. Oh, preacher, I don't know if I can get saved. What will God say about all of it? Why would God receive me? Why would God forgive me? What right do I have? You have no right. There is no reason in this world that God would receive you. There is no reason, according to human logic, that God would forgive you. But listen, that's where grace comes in and does what human experience and logic cannot do. It reminds me of another story very similar to this. I don't know if you remember it. You probably heard it a time or two. Christ told a parable in Luke chapter 15 of two brothers and the younger of them. He took all of his inheritance that had belonged to his father. He was tired of his father's rules. He was tired of his father's standard. And he goes out and takes all that inheritance and departs into a far country. And there he wastes away his living, his money, his inheritance. He wastes away his life on riotous living. And pretty soon when the booze is gone, the drugs is gone, the girls is gone, the friends are gone. And he's left with nothing. The Bible says he joined himself to a citizen of that country and, and, play, and went out and fed his swine, which, by the way, for a Jewish boy, that's pretty low. And fed his swine. And people say, well, he ate the pig slop. He didn't eat the pig slop. He wanted to eat the pig slop and wasn't allowed to eat the pig slop. Listen, you understand that if sin gets a hold of you, I want, I want our young people to hear this. If sin gets a hold of you, it'll bring you to a place where even the lowest of the low will not be allowed for you. Finally, he comes to himself. That's the way the Bible says it. When he came to himself, he said, My father's hired servants have enough to eat and above more than enough to eat. You know, when he had left there, he was a son that felt like a servant. But now as he's coming back, he just wants to be a servant. He don't expect to be treated like a son. And he says, I'll go and I'll plead with my father and I'll say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against thee. Make me as one of thy hired servants. I'm no more worthy to be called your son. He comes back and he's got it all rehearsed. <laughs> it's funny, you know, and I don't know if I can make this, this equation, but I'm going to try to. We think it's about the words that we pray. We think it's about the words that we pray. I believe a sinner comes to Christ praying, don't you? But we think it's about the words that we pray. I can't tell you how many people I've led to the Lord and they've said, oh, I don't know what to pray. Don't you know that this boy rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed this? He had it down pat. You say, how do you know that, preacher? Because he says it verbatim twice in that passage. He, he, he desires to say it. And he comes to the Father and he says this all out. He spits it all out. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against thee and I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me now as one of thy hired servants. And you know what the Father does? The Bible says he just wraps his arms around him and hugs his neck and kisses him and weeps on him. And he says, bring the best ring, bring the best robe, bring shoes for his feet, kill the fatted calf. My son that was dead is alive once again forevermore. Kind of the way Esau looked at his brother and said, listen, I don't want to hear about all that. I just want to hug your neck. I'm just glad we're finally right with each other again. Don't you understand that's how much God loves you, lost sinner? You're afraid of what he's going to say. It's not about what he's going to say. He's going to grab you and wrap you in his arms and receive you and accept you in the beloved. If you'll just come broken and bowing before him, not leaning upon your own righteousness, not leaning upon your own good works, but forever forsaking any attempt to try to get to heaven on your own to say, Lord, I can't do it. Do it for me. 
I see he's a picture in his approach in that he was accepted in the beloved. But I want you to notice what grace did to him. Look down at verse number 5. The Bible says this, And he lifted up his eyes, speaking of Esau, and saw the women and the children, and said, Who are those with thee? And he said, The children which God hath graciously given thy servant. I want you to notice that grace, not only we see him arriving, bowing and accepted in the beloved, but grace caused him to acknowledge God's blessings on his life. It's interesting to lay this beside some of Jacob's statements that he makes. If you were to go back to the passages where he is working for Laban so that he can uh, buy and, and, and purchase the dowry for, for Leah and for Rachel, over and over again he talks about how that he has worked so hard. He talks about, I've worked seven years for one, I've worked seven years for another, I've worked seven years for the cattle. And he's always talking about everything he's done. But once he meets Esau face to face, once he's a broken and blessed and branded man forever changed, he's not talking about what he's done anymore. Now when Esau says, what about these? Who are all these people? He says, hey, that's what God's done in my life, Esau. That's what God's done in my life. You know, when a person comes to know Christ, that's one of the things that changes in them is the way that they talk and the way that they perceive the world around them. I I will readily tell you that there's nothing in my life worth having that came from me. Every good gift, every perfect gift cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. It didn't come from me, it came from God. There's anything righteous about me, it's not me, it's God through me. There's anything worth redeeming about me, it's not me, it's what God saw in me and through me and does in my life. He was acknowledging God's blessings. I see a picture of our salvation, a lesson that he learns about the approach of grace. Now look down at verse number 8. By the way, it's interesting, note in verse number 7, I wanted to move past this, but I can't. It says, And Leah also with her children came near and bowed themselves and came after Joseph near and Rachel, and they bowed themselves. You know what will happen when you get born again? Not only will you bow yourself, but you'll bow everything that belongs to you to God. When, when grace gets a hold of you, there won't be none of this tithing and mincing cumin, breaking out the weights to make sure we don't give God just a pinch too much. There won't be any of this, well, God, I gave you this, but I can't give you that. Well, God, listen, I'll consecrate this part of my life, but I can't consecrate this part of my life. When grace begins to work in your heart and life, you'll say, Lord, let me bow it all down before you. We see in this passage in the approach unto grace. But now I want you to notice that verse number 8, he learned about the abundance of grace. This is fascinating. And he said, What meanest thou by all this drove which I met? This is Esau talking. What meanest thou by all this drove which I met? Now, you understand what he's talking about, right? Whenever Jacob had split his family up, he had sent ahead of him several companies of cattle and livestock as a gift for Esau. He was going to try to butter Esau up and soften him up, hoping that things would go better. And Esau says, What are all these and what do these mean? And he said, These, notice carefully his language, These are to find grace in the sight of my Lord. And Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep that thou hast unto thyself. Notice verse number 10. And Jacob said, Nay, I pray thee. Notice how it changes. If now I have found grace in thy sight, then receive my present at my hand. For therefore I have seen thy face as though I had seen the face of God and thou was pleased with me. Now I want you to notice an interesting dynamic here. Notice first off the reason that he gave his gift in verse number 8. He says these are to find grace in thy sight. Now isn't that just like mankind? 
Here's part of the problem. I want you to listen carefully. You want to know what true legalism is? People think if, if, if a lady puts on a skirt, that's legalism. People think if, 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 uh, if uh, a boy wants to look like a boy, that's legalism. That's not legalism. You know what legalism is? People, hey, listen, people think if you got any kind of standards, that's legalism. I got news for you. Every place has standards. Are you listening? Go walk into the, to the Burger King stark naked. Somebody's going to have something to say about it. They got standards, but we believe the local church ought not have standards. The truth is, everybody has standards. It's not do you have standards, it's what are your standards. People think you're a legalist if you have any of these things. No, you know what legalism is? Legalism is the pursuit of the pleasing of God through human merit. Legalism could not be defined any greater than the way that Jacob just defined it. Esau said, what are all these? And he said, these are to find grace in your sight. And you know, that's the problem with a lot of modern day Christianity. That's a lesson that even those of us who have been born again and saved by God's grace for 10, 15, 20, 30 years, we still don't get it. God is not impressed with our good works. It's not the purpose of it. We still have this hierarchy and this standard and this thing in our minds that, that we, we perceive some people as more spiritual because of this, that, or the other. I got news for you. Nothing that we do means anything next to the righteousness of Christ. Who we are in Christ is not determined by what we do. It's determined by what He has done. The reason for His gift, He says, these are to find grace in thy sight. Notice the rejection of His gift. What does Esau say? Keep it to thyself, brother. I have enough. That's fascinating, isn't it? If we're trying to look at this thing, and if Esau's a picture of, of, of God, and if Jacob's a picture of, of the sinner that has come to know Christ, and, and, and now he's saved and he's trying to live right and do right, and he's trying to approach unto God, why would God do this? I want you to listen carefully. God does not accept anything that we give in thinking that uh, He owes us anything. Uh, anything that we do for Him in an attempt to try to bolster our status with Him, means nothing to God. Motives matter. Intentions matter. In other words, let me say this. If you came to church to do God a favor, God said, that's all right, I have enough. Hey, listen, if, if, if you read your Bible to try to do God a favor, do Him a solid, He says, that's all right, I got enough. He's not interested in us coming on equal standing with Him. Uh, listen, if we do anything for God, it's not something we're doing as a gift. It's, do, it's something we're doing that we're repaying a debt. You listening? God will be a debtor to no man. Anything that you do for Him, you're not doing Him a favor. Uh, you owe it to Him. Right? You owe it to Him. And that's what's interesting. Notice now the reception of His gift. All of a sudden things change. Now don't miss this nuance. Jacob says, these are to find grace in thy sight, O Lord. Esau says, not interested. And then Jacob says, no, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. These aren't to find grace in your sight. I'm giving you this because I have found grace in your sight. Esau says, okay, if that's why you're giving it, I'll take that. In other words, there's only one proper reason to serve the Lord. And that's because we're bought with a price. We belong to Him. We're, listen, we're not serving God to get to heaven. We're serving God because we're already going to heaven. Listen, I, I'm, I'm not. if I do anything for the Lord, it's not to try to get there. It's because He's already brought me there. It's because He's already brought me out. I, I'm not doing it to try to stack up a bunch of credit. I'm doing it to try to pay off a debt that I've already been, uh, been uh, given a credit for. He's already saved me. I'm not doing it to get saved. 
I'm doing it because He's already saved me. This is important. You'll never listen. You'll never get this thing of serving God nailed down until you really understand this. Because as long as you think you're doing it because you're doing a favor for God, you're eventually going to start to think about yourself instead of thinking about God, and you're going to quit, quote-unquote, doing Him favors. Only when you realize that you owe a debt. I was reading, studying about it. We've been teaching through Romans chapter number 1 in Sunday school. Paul says, I am a debtor, both to the Greeks and to the barbarians. You know, the Greeks and the barbarians, they hadn't never done a thing for Paul. You know why he was a debtor to them? Because he was a debtor to God, and God loved them. He was saying, everything I do in my life, I do it because I owe a debt. Listen, if you draw a breath today, that's due to God. You owe Him a debt. Uh, If you have mind enough to think and to listen to the preaching, it's because God's allowed it. You owe Him a debt. If you're forgiven today by the grace of God, don't you understand uh, what happened when you got saved? Your debt didn't go away. It's just Christ bought it out. (laughs) And He doesn't want you to pay it by dying and going to hell. He wants you to pay it by living for Him for His glory. We understand we can never repay that debt. But I always likened it to, I remember when I first bought a house, a few months after I bought our house, whenever we bought it, the company that owned it, Jackson Hewitt was the, the company. That sounds like a race car driver, don't it, or a country singer. But uh, they, they were the ones that owned the mortgage for it. And I got a letter about six months afterwards that said that Wells Fargo had bought out our mortgage. That didn't mean I could quit paying. Believe me, I tried. Amen. No, that didn't mean I quit paying. That just means the debt was owed to somebody new. Listen, you owe to sin debt. You were on your way to hell. You deserve to die and to go to hell, just like I deserve to die and go to hell. If God was fair, that's what we would get. So quit whining about God being fair. Because if, if God was fair, that's what we'd get. Amen? I owe to sin debt. I could not pay it. I deserve to die and go to hell. But Christ came and He paid my debt for me. He took my sins upon Himself. He with, his, he with the infinite bank account of His spotless righteousness, wretch in and deep out of the money bag of His grace and plot down on the barrel head of eternity the payment for my sin. And now all of a sudden, my debt didn't go away. I just owe it to a new person. And my debt now I owe to Christ. I'm bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. And in your spirit. I want you to notice a final thing this morning. We see the approach unto grace. He learned something about how you approach to the grace of God. He learned something about the abundance of grace, uh, what God needs and what God will accept. But look down at verse number 12. The Bible says, And he said, Let us take our journey and let us go, and I will go before thee. This is Esau that is speaking. And he said unto him, My Lord knoweth that the children are tender, and the flocks and herds with young are with me. And if men should overdrive them one day, all the flock will die. Let my Lord, I pray thee, pass over before his servant, and I will lead on softly according as the cattle that goeth before me, and the children may be able to endure until I come unto my Lord unto Seir. And Esau said, Let me now leave with thee some of the folk that are with me. And he said, What needeth thee? Let me find grace in the sight of my Lord. He learned something about the abiding of grace. I want to be very clear with what I'm about to say. I believe once a person is saved, they are always saved. I did not buy my salvation, so I can't give my salvation away. I did not pay my debt, so I cannot nullify that payment. I did not save me. Christ saved me, so I can't unsave me. I'm within the hand of the Father, and I'm kept eternally secure. But there is a difference between consciously abiding with the grace of God and passively abiding with the grace of God. You say, what do you mean, preacher? I mean being aware of God's grace working in your life every day. 
You understand that God has worked effectually in your heart and life today with His grace, whether you realize it or not. Can I give you one short example before we preach these last thoughts? You know, you made it to church this morning, right? Everybody, everybody in here made it to church, right? Am I right? All right. Seeing who's awake. Has it ever dawned on you that as you passed hundreds, maybe thousands of cars, the only thing that got you here, that kept you alive, was a, a double yellow line in people's common sense? I was riding on the way to church this morning. Somebody was driving crazy. And uh, my wife gets after me all the time. I don't have a good spirit when it comes to people driving bad. I don't. I, I just, and the Lord needs to help me with that because I really, I get in the flesh, I get angry, and uh, I'm afraid one of these days I'm just going to get mad and run into somebody. But it was just all over the road, man. It was just crazy, you know. And it wasn't, there wasn't even nobody around. It's like they were just driving crazy just to impress me. I don't know. But I, I get angry, and I think to myself, you know, I, here I am, I've got my wife and my child in this car. Certain death could be a moment away from my entire world. And here they are out there driving like an idiot, talking on their cell phone. Amen. But the very fact that you pulled into this parking lot today is an expression of God's grace. We've heard time and again here lately about folks dying unexpectedly. I, we were, we were, when we were in Senior Saints on Friday, Miss Wanda was giving us a testimony about some of the health scares that she's had in, in years past. And she was mentioning about aneurysms that she had had uh, on, on her brain. What kept those from bursting? It had to have been the grace of God. I mean, how many people? What was it, 25 is that what you said, or five? I thought 25 seemed like a lot. Five. Five is a lot. It's too much. There's a lot of people leave this world just with one. I'm saying this, that the grace of God is with us at all times, but we don't always acknowledge God's grace. God desires, and that's the first thing I'd like you to notice. What was Esau's desire? Esau said, we're going to go back to Seir, and he said, I'm going to go with you. We'll talk along the way. We'll discuss what's happened in the past years since we've been apart. We'll fellowship. We'll commune one with another. You know, that's how God wants us to live with His grace. He wants us to live every day conscious of His goodness and grace on our lives. That's the will of God. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. You're never going to give thanks to something you ain't paying attention to. Right? You're never going to give thanks to something you ain't paying attention to. If God wants you to give thanks in all things, you need to be paying attention to what God's doing in your life. We see His desire, but then notice His dismissal. What did Jacob said? He said, no, that's okay. I'm not sure if we could keep up with you. I'm not sure if we could keep up with you. And he said, no, thank you. You know what that reminds me of? It reminds me of this. If we don't notice the grace of God, it's not because it's not there. It's because we've chosen to not walk in lockstep with it. I hear people say all the time, well, I just wish God would work in my life. Don't you realize God is working in your life? It may not be the way you hope or expect. What you're usually really saying is, I wish God would do what I want Him to do. Well, welcome to the club. We would all love for things to work out the way that we want them to work out. But at the end of the day, we have to understand that God has a plan for this thing, and we don't. God knows what He's doing, and we don't. And we need to accept the workings of God's grace in our life. We see His dismissal. Notice the delegation He wanted to leave. He said, let me just leave a few people with you. Boy, there's been people like that that God's left in my life. There's been people that were, I mean, listen, and I believe they're real people with birthdays and death days of flesh and blood. I'm not saying otherwise, but I'm saying they were in a symbolic sense, a very picture 
of the presence of God's grace in my life. People that God used to lift me up at times when I was down low. People that God used to push me on when I didn't have the strength. Sometimes people that God used to hold me back when I was on the edge of the cliff. And God has placed people in my life and yours. People that can encourage us and lead us and guide us and bless us and strengthen us. And notice finally, and I'm done because I'm starting to smell the food just like you are. Notice his determination. He says, let me just leave some people with you. And Jacob says, no, I don't want to. And you know, the Bible says in verse number 16, so Esau journeyed on his way to Seir. You know what the deal was. And by the way, the the typology sort of falls apart here after this because Jacob does not follow Esau. He goes to Succoth and, and, and builds a house there. The only time you'll see a patriarch putting down roots, and it was when he was out of the will of God. But the interesting thing to me is to note this. Regardless of what Jacob did, Esau said, I'm going to go in front of you and go before you one way or the other. (laughs) Oh, my. What wonderful grace that God has bestowed upon us. That even when we're rebellious, grace still goes before us. Even when we're going the wrong way, grace still goes before us. Even when we don't care a thing about God's grace, God's grace goes before us. It's like Esau was saying, Jacob, that's fine, but you can't stop me from going in front of you and clearing the path. <laughs> he might have, Jacob might have had to worry if he had had to go it alone, right? Bandits, robbers, uh, all kinds of people that might have been on that road between where they were at and Seir. But he didn't have to worry. You know why? Because Esau and 400 big old burly soldiers had already plowed a straight path on the way to Seir. All he had to do was just follow in tow. You know, it's like the grace of God. What could we fear if the grace of God is going in front of us? What could we fear if the grace of God is going in front of us? Preacher, there may be things too big for me to handle. Yeah, but they're not bigger than the grace of God. Preacher, there are things that I don't understand and I don't know what's going to happen. That's all right. Grace is going on in front of you. Reminds me of what the psalmist said in Psalms 23 when he said, Mercy and truth shall follow me all the days of my life. Uh, You notice he talks about what follows him, but he doesn't talk about what's in front of him, does he? Oh, he sure does. He says, The Lord is my shepherd. He leadeth me beside still waters. Mercy and truth were behind him, but the shepherd was in front of the psalmist. He had no reason to fear. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thy rod and thy staff, they are with me and they comfort me. He didn't have anything to be afraid of while the shepherd was out in front of him. And with the grace of God at the front of us, there may be things that may be human to fear, but it's not divine to fear them. And we can have confidence that the grace of God will not take us anywhere, that the will of God will not take us anywhere, that the grace of God will not sustain and protect us. All we have to do is just follow along. Oh, what God wants is for you to walk beside His grace. But if you won't do that, you can walk behind it. His grace will still go on ahead with our heads bowed, with our eyes closed.